0: Today we'd like to talk about God's heirs, as is listed in your bulletin. The Bible, the inspired Word of God, presents the way of the light of life eternal. It offers only one formula. Eternal life can be had from one source, and at the time of God's appointment, you can obtain it if you really want it. Before I tell you how you can get it, I'd like to present two ways that you cannot get it. Number one, eternal life does not come through natural birth. Man was created on a perfect plane. But he sinned, as you know, and plunged the whole race into the condition of sin and death. Romans 3, verse 23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That all means all. It means you, it means me. If you're a member of the human race, it includes you. And therefore, everyone needs a Savior. If we're going to get rid of this sinful nature that we inherited, we need the Lord Jesus Christ to be our a Savior. All the world is guilty before God, the Bible says. Let's look at the book of Romans. I'm going to look at chapter 5 here in the book of Romans. Many students believe that the book of Romans is the most important book in the New Testament besides after the four Gospels. I would tend to agree. Justification by faith, as you know, is the uh, theme of it. Going back to that first man in verse 12, we read, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. We've all come short of the glory of God. We all need a Savior. And down in verse 19, we read, For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. That was Adam. So all the, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. That's the Lord uh, Jesus. In other words, uh, one man got us in this mess, and one man can get us out. <laughs> See? We all became sinners through the first man. Adam and we all who believe in Christ can find his righteousness and life eternal in the age to come we have a great inheritance in the age uh, to come a lot of nonsense has been written about the universal brotherhood of man many people have the idea that well we're all just goody-goody people and we're all the human race and we're all the same and everything's great Well, now the Bible says, as I just mentioned, that we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Of course, there is an ounce of truth in that idea of the universal uh, brotherhood of man. But the Bible recognizes two conditions, you see, or two creations, I should say, two creations, the old creation and the new creation. Scripture said, "If if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17. Adam is the federal head of the old creation. And Jesus Christ is the head of the uh, new uh, creation. We have to move out of the family of Adam and move into the family of God through Christ if we're going to inherit the uh, coming uh, kingdom. they so are just... Two highways we can travel in this life. The broad way goes the uh, way of uh, destruction, and the straight and narrow way goes the way of life eternal. Jesus said uh, about these two highways in Matthew chapter 7, verse 14 Enter ye in at this straight gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be that go in thereat. And then he was quick to add. Straight is the way and narrow is the road that leads to light and few, not many, but few there be that find it. All you have to do to be lost is just stay with Adam. Oftentimes the question is asked, what do, do, what do I need to do to be saved? Well, we can click off the steps and that's all important. But sometimes I like to turn around and ask, well, what do you have to do to be lost? <laughs> you don't have to do anything. You're born lost. You're born under condemnation. And Christ is the one who takes us out of condemnation and gives us justification. The book of Romans is easy to understand, really. The the first chapter, Paul shows that the Gentiles are under condemnation. Chapter 2, he shows that the Jews are under condemnation. In chapter 3, he lumps them together and says, both Jews and Gentiles are under condemnation, and all the world is guilty before God. Then chapter 4 He begins the theme of the book justification by faith that was the uh, theme of the protestant reformation uh, you'll remember justification by faith and he goes on and develops that until he gets over to chapters 9 10 11 then he puts in a parenthetical section that uh, chapters 9 10 11 focus on the future restoration and conversion of god's people israel and then he goes back to his theme of justification by faith That's the way the book of Romans uh, is written. So we cannot get eternal life through natural birth. Number two, it does not come through the law. The law was given to point out sin. As the Bible says, by the law is the knowledge of sin. Romans 3, verse 20. By the law is the knowledge of sin. Paul the great apostle confessed, I had not known sin unless the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. How did he know it was wrong to covet? The law taught him that. That's all the law can do is to point us uh, to our need of the Savior. By the law is the knowledge of sin. The law points us down the road to a calvary. You know, you might look in a mirror and find a smudge on your face, but the mirror cannot clean you up. The mirror points you over to the laboratory where the soap and water is. And then you can clean your face, see. Well, the law served the same purpose. The law was given to show us our deep need of the Lord Jesus. The law was given to teach us that the wages of sin is death, you see. Now, the soap and water, of course, uh, is not of any value unless you use it. You can see the smudge on your face and go on your merry way. And James says sometimes we look in the glass and we see ourselves and we just go on our merry way. Yeah, We have to take the soap and water and use it. Well, the same is true when it comes to salvation. It's not enough to just know about Christ and know that he died. He has to become our personal Savior. That's the method that works. Jesus said of the Jews, they have eyes to see, but they see not. Their blindness concerned their Messiah and adherence to the law that he had come, to the law after uh, he had come. Un- the law was to be enforced until the seed should come. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3 verse 19. Wherefore then serve us the law? Why do you want to serve the law? Paul raises this issue. What was its purpose? It was added because of transgression. For how long? Till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. Christ is the seed of Abraham, uh, the Savior, through whom we enter into the rich provisions of God. The law was added to the Abrahamic promises until the seed should come. And then Paul goes on in his chapter and uh, points out in verse 24, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. But after we are justified by faith, that we might be justified by faith, but after the faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. We're all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So here we need to move, uh, use the law as it was designed to to be used to point out our need of sin and to take us to the cross where we can find forgiveness of sin, a newness of life, and assurance of life eternal in the age to come. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the apostle makes a comparison between the law and the gospel, the law that... God gave through Moses to the people of Israel, uh, you'll remember. Verse 11, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 11. For that which is done away was glorious, much more that which remains is glorious. Now he's talking about the law. It was given on Sinai and all the glory and the earthquakes and all that. It just says that was glorious, indeed. But that was done away, and he says, well, how much more glorious is the gospel of Christ? comparison christ is better than the law verse 13 for as moses which put a veil over his face that the children of israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished notice that law system is abolished it died at the cross and christ takes us on from there but their minds were blinded, for until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ's See, The law brought us so far, and that's as far as it can go. It just points us to Christ, and then he takes us the rest of the way. Anyone, Jew or Gentile, who lives under the law denies that Jesus is the mediator of the New Testament. He has fallen from grace Galatians 5 and verse 4 you might be driving down the highway and you see a sign it may tell you how far it is to the next city maybe it's 50 miles to East Moline for example but it doesn't take you there it just gives you the information that's what the law does it gives us this information it tells us our deep need of Christ and then we can go to Christ and he fulfills all of our needs now and for eternity the law tells us how far we come short see and shows us our need of christ the law was given by moses but grace and truth came by jesus christ john 1 verse 17. now in Galatians chapter 4 let's have a look at this passage galatians chapter 4 an allegory of isaac and ishmael the two sons of abraham we'll begin with verse 21 tell me ye that uh, paul now is speaking to these galatians who had come to christ but they wanted to hang on to the law they couldn't make the transition from the law covenant to the new testament gospel see and that's what paul says to them tell me ye that desire to be under the law do you not hear the law for it is written that abraham had two sons one by a bondwoman, a bondmaid, and the other by a free woman. But he was of uh, the bondwoman, was born after the flesh. But he of the free woman was by promise. What's he talking about? Which are an allegory, an illustration. For these are the two covenants. The one, that, one from Mount Sinai, which is to bondage, which is agar, or hagar. For this hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answer to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. And jumping down to verse 30, Nevertheless, what saith the scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir of the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. So we are free in Christ. We're not bound to the law. This allegory is a very convincing one. It shows us uh, how a superior Christ is over all the law and all of judaism the bible deals with two religions judaism and christianity so we have to make the transition from judaism under the law to christ under the new testament we're not under the law now i'm saying i'm not saying that the old testament isn't important it's very important but our uh our uh, position to, position today is under the new uh, covenant Now, being an heir of God does not come by natural birth. It does not come through the law. Number three, it comes through Jesus Christ. When we study the subject of eternal life, we're faced with two beliefs in the Christian world today. One says that eternal life is the inherent nature of the human race, that we have immortality and the mortal soul, and when we die, it's either going to spend eternity in torment or with God. That's a Greek philosophy. The Bible does not teach that at all. The second view it, uh, is that it is conditional and it comes through Jesus Christ. Eternal life can be had from Christ alone. There's no other source of life eternal. In Mark 10, a young man came to Jesus one day, very excited, wanting to be his follower. In Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 17, this young man came to him, the rich young ruler. We call him. Mark 10:17. When he was gone forth into the way, Jesus was out in the open way. He wasn't in secret. This young man didn't come to Jesus by night like Nicodemus did. No, he was out in the in the public. There came a, one running. Notice he was very excited about what he about his question. He kneeled to him. He was he was hum, uh, he was humble. And ask him, good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? He was looking for an inheritance. He knew he didn't have eternal life. Otherwise, he wouldn't have come and asked Christ how to get it. What what must I do that I might inherit eternal life? And And Jesus stated the conditions to him. And verse 22 says, he was sad at that saying and went away grieved for he had great possessions. I think that's one of the saddest verses in the Bible. Here was a young man very enthusiastic about inheriting eternal life. Jesus told him what to do, and he turned around and walked away. Why? He had great possessions. He not only had possessions, his possessions had him. That was the problem. And that's the problem of many people today. They don't just have possessions. their possessions have them. That's what we can learn from this uh, a young man here who uh, was seeking life. He came to the right place, the right person. He got his question answered clearly and plainly and then uh, turned away. Then, jumping down to verse 29, Jesus goes on to say, And I say unto you, There is no man that hath left house or brethren or sister or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospel's. We shall receive an hundredfold now, today, now, in this time, houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the world to come, or more correctly, at the age to come, life eternal. Here's our inheritance, you see, in the age to come when Jesus is revealed uh, from heaven in power and great glory. That is when we receive our eternal life. We do not possess it or er, we do not possess it now. We cannot be an heir and a possessor of something at the same time. If you're an heir, you're not a possessor. And if you're a possessor, you're no longer an heir. Today we are heirs. When Christ comes, we'll enter into our possession daniel 7 verse 22 says the time comes when the saints possess the kingdom that's the day that we are looking forward to now john puts eternal life on the basis of promise first john chapter 2 and verse 25 first john 2 verse 25 john wrote five books of the new testament most of you know wrote the gospel of John these three epistles and the revelation we're reading now from his inspired pen first John 2 verse 25 for this is the promise that he hath promised us even eternal life he has promised us eternal life this is the record that God has given to us eternal life and this life is in his son he that hath the son has life and he that has not the son of God hath not life. First John 5, verses 11 and 12. God has placed eternal life within our reach. It is not in Adam. It is not in Mary. It is not in Peter. It's in Christ alone. Neither is our salvation in any other. For so there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Acts 4 and verse 12. Then in Titus chapter 1 and verse 2. Titus 1 and verse 2. This was a church that was located on the island of Crete in the Mediterranean Sea. And Titus was the pastor. Chapter 1 verse 2 reads, In hope of eternal life. Which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. God has promised us eternal life. He cannot lie. And we know we will enter into our inheritance when Jesus comes again. Now those two words modify eternal life. Hope and promise. We have this as a hope. This is our promise. God who cannot lie has promised us us that. Chapter 3 in Titus verse 7 reads that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs, there's the word, heirs, according to the hope of eternal life. We are heirs of the coming uh, kingdom. Romans 2 verse 7 says we're to seek for glory and honor and immortality. Well, if we already had it, we wouldn't be seeking it. We are, as believers, we are candidates for immortality in the age uh, to come. In John 6, we find an interesting event in the life of Christ. John's Gospel, chapter 6. Verse 60 uh, speaks of a hard saying that Jesus was giving to the multitude and to the disciples as well. And jumping down to verse 66, it says, From that time many of his disciples went back and walked no more with them. Then said Jesus unto them, Will ye also go away? Now get the picture here. Christ is teaching. He's giving some hard sayings. And a bunch of that multitude walked away. And Jesus looked at the twelve and said, Are you going to walk away too? And then Peter said unto them, Simon uh, Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. The Son of the living God is the one who can bring us life eternal. Then in Romans 8, we speak of being, we read that we are heirs of God. Chapter 8 in the book of Romans, beginning with verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. That's very, very important. Be led by the Spirit of God. The scripture says, If any man have not the Spirit of God, he is none of his. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For we have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but he hath received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. And that's the Arabic word I understand. It means Daddy. If that would be the uh, relationship of a small child to his father. He calls him Daddy. Now, I don't think any translator today would refer to God as Daddy, but uh, maybe that's the, that's the closest thing you could get to it, perhaps. The Spirit is bears witness with our spirit, that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs of God and join heirs with Christ. Join heirs with Christ. My friends, we have a rich inheritance. Sonship with God involves brotherhood in Christ. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. Christ is our older brother. God is our father. Christ our older brother. And we are brothers and sisters in Christ. A newborn infant is small and weak and helpless. But is a child of its parents as much the moment of its birth as it ever will be. His relationship is complete with his father, but incomplete in development. The infant is a person, a son, a member of the family, but incomplete in development. The whole future man is in that little infant. That he has to develop through the years. I read the other day of two daughters of the king of England We're walking through the park and the custard and asked him, Who are you? And one of the daughters said, Oh, we are nobody, but our father is the king. (laughs) So so it is. We might be nobody as far as our own righteousness is concerned, but we are children of the king. That is our position. We have nothing to boast in really of our own. Galatians 6 verse 14 says, God forbid that I should glory, saving the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. As believers, we have one thing we can boast in. We can lift high the cross. That's what we uh, need to do. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we'll be like him, for we shall see him as he is someday we'll have immortality our physical natures will be uh, transformed into the likeness of Christ this is a sure promise that the Lord has uh, given us now let's look at that text we read a few minutes ago from Galatians chapter 4 Galatians chapter 4 perhaps we're all familiar with verses 4 and 5 but when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth, his, sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law. Notice Christ was made. He wasn't incarnated. Mary gave birth to Jesus in the manger in Bethlehem. So I uh, read a little article the other day. Two men were talking about Christmas, and one of them said, I'm so glad that Jesus was born in Pittsburgh. The other one said, No, he wasn't born in Pittsburgh. He was born in Bethlehem. And the first one said, well, I knew it was in Pennsylvania. <laughs> Jesus, our Savior, born in the manger, crucified on the cross, ascended into the heavens, been on God's right hand for over 2,000 years now. He's coming again in power and great glory. Someday in the future, unknown to man and known only to God, Christ will break through the blue and we'll enter into our Inheritance. We have the adoption of sons. Then verses 6 and 7 here in Galatians 4. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That's the word again. Wherefore, there are no more a servant but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Servants don't inherit. Let's say here's a man has, uh, let's say he's a real rich man has 50 servants. He has two sons. He dies. Who he sees the inheritance? The two sons. Because they have that relationship, you see. Their father-son relationship. That heir uh, relationship. Serv- uh, sonship rules out servanthood and includes heirship. We are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. So we have to decide if we want to be a servant of this world system or if we want to become children of God and live uh, for him. There's so much glory in Christianity over Judaism. The the book of Hebrews tells us that Judaism is a worn-out garment. It's obsolete. There's no value to us today. We need to move out of that into Christ and the New Testament. Judaism was... The law covenant was sanctified by the blood of animals and bulls and goats and so on. The New Testament is sanctified by the blood of Jesus Christ. The Jewish people had many high priests. One succeeded the other. But we have one high priest forever. After he offered the perfect sacrifice for sin, he sat down on the right hand of God. Always in Israel you saw the priest standing. They never sat down. Never sat down. All that beautiful tabernacle and later the temple, you wouldn't find one chair. You know why? Their work was never done. Never done. The people kept on sinning. They kept on coming to the priest and making sacrifices. They couldn't sit down. But Christ, after he offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. What does it symbolize? He's done with his sacrificial work. Just before he died on the cross, one of his saying was, It is finished. Meaning, his sacrificial work was finished. We'll never need another sacrifice. He made one sacrifice for sins forever. All of us are familiar, I'm sure, with Galatians 3, verse 29. If ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. For ye all the children of God, by faith in Christ Jesus, verse 26. Then in the Revelation, the final chapter of the New Testament... Chapter 21, the last two chapters give us a beautiful word picture of eternity. I've jumped over here and read the last two chapters. I know how this story is going to turn out. We're on the winning team. We're going to win. We're going to gain eternal life in the age to come. Revelation 21, verse 7. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my Son. See, the condition here is to be overcomers. And the Bible says we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Romans 8, verse 37. Then the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, and verse 9. Dan touched on this chapter in our Sunday school lesson a while ago. I just want to look at one verse, verse 9. Speaking of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For he or Abraham looked for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. That's verse 10. Let's jump back and read verse 9. Hebrews 11, verse 9. By faith he, Abraham, sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles or tents, with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. God gave this promise to Abraham, all the land from the Euphrates River uh, down to the river of Egypt would uh, go to uh, Abraham and his physical descendants, and uh, that land of course is under, has been in dispute, and uh, wars have been fought again and again through that part of the world, still raging today, It will go on until the Prince of Peace comes and takes over the rulership of the Middle East and the whole earth. And then we'll enter into our wonderful kingdom. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob notice. God made the covenant to Abraham, then he renewed it to Isaac, and then to Jacob. Now we stand in good company when we stand with these fellows. There's good ground to stand on here. These promises that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we in Christ are heirs of these great and precious promises. We couldn't end up talking uh, about heirs without looking at James 2, verse 5. James, the practical writer of the New Testament, says, Hearken, my beloved brethren. Hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom that is promised to them that love him? We are heirs of the coming kingdom. We're not in the kingdom now. We'll enter into our inheritance when Jesus comes. Jesus established the church the first time he came. He'll establish the kingdom the second time he comes. I've noticed that in much of Christianity today, almost nothing is said about the second coming. I go to a lot of ministers' meetings. I'm in different churches for different reasons. I I like to, while I'm sitting around waiting, pick up a hymn book and just look through it. And the hymn books in the mainline churches, they don't have one single song of the second coming. That really, uh, that seems, Well, lot of us don't know how to, how to say it, really. It uh, just amazes me. They never say anything about the second coming. Well, you know, without the second coming, we've got an incomplete message. The only way God's program is going to be completed is when Christ returns in power and great glory to judge the world and raise the dead and establish his kingdom throughout the whole world, the whole wide world. I'm a strong believer in the new heavens and new earth. I'm a strong believer in the coming kingdom of God. I'm a strong believer in the return of Christ. I believe in conditional immortality. We can gain immortality if we meet the conditions that are spelled for us in the Bible. So eternal life, our inheritance, doesn't come through natural birth. It does not come through the law. It comes through Christ and Christ alone. This is the record that God has given to us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son has life. And he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. 1 John 5, verses 11 and 12. Well, if you don't have life, what do you have? The Bible recognizes two conditions, life and death. You're either dead or you're alive. To listen to some of these theologians, you wouldn't think that, but it's, fact, it's a fact. The Bible recognizes two conditions only, life and death. We have life uh, in Christ. As believers in Jesus, we are children of the King and heirs of God's coming kingdom.